you're under, let's say, 32 years old, you're almost certainly used to Norwich City as one of the country's yo-yo teams. Particularly over the last 10 years or so, they've finished in either the bottom half of the Premier League or the top half of the second tier every year, and there's only really been one exception to that. The idea that Norwich were top-flight regulars will strike people of that age as unusual, but from the early 1970s to the mid-1990s, that's what Norwich City were. In a tradition that sounds a lot like Liverpool's fabled boot room, they also routinely hired from within. Legendary manager John Bond was replaced in 1980 by his assistant, Ken Brown, who was replaced by the reserve team manager, Dave Stringer, in 1987. And through all this period, Norwich punched above their financial weight. There were some low moments in that run, of course there were, uh, but they only spent three years outside the top flight in more than two decades. And whenever they were relegated, they won promotion at the first attempt. By the time of the first Premier League campaign, the side under Dave Stringer that had finished as high as fourth some years earlier was starting to come apart. Star striker Robert Fleck had been top scorer for each of the previous four seasons, and he'd just been sold to Chelsea for what was then the huge sum of £2.1 million, and he was the latest in a long line of sales of top players. It was survival against the backdrop of having the spine sold out from under him that saw Stringer resign and an Irish man to the court retire from the game rather than join in the perennial managerial merry-go-round. So Norwich would be going into the new Premier League under new management, and after a false start that saw a contract offer to, and then withdrawn from, Liverpool legend Phil Neal, Norwich returned to their tradition and made the internal appointment of Mike Walker, at the time reserve team manager. No one knew it yet, but from an 18th place finish the previous year, two of the finest seasons in the club's history were about to take place. So after our brief mid-season break last week, we're back again with Maz and Neil. Uh, gents, let's, let's start with Mike Walker then, first of all. Because uh, it's his era at Norwich that we're really looking at today. Obviously, a fine spell at Norwich here and his second at Colchester in the late 80s has gone down as a major blunder by their chairman. But equally, Walker's reputation gets enhanced massively by this spell at Norwich and he never quite lives up to it again. Whether it's that disastrous spell at Everton that's about to come or the ill-fated return to the Canaries later when they're up in the second tier. So before we get into what was good about this team, then, is the overall lesson from, from Ian's dad, as I sometimes like to think of him, that sometimes in football, it's not so much about being good or bad as being the right person in the right place at the right time? I think you could compare this spell of Walkers to Brendan Rodgers at Liverpool, in the sense that this was a team that was basically all out attack almost every game. They get a bit cuter um, later on when they play in Europe, but they they finished third in the league with a negative goal difference, which I can't think that's happened very often. But, you know, they were routinely winning games 4-3. You know, we talked about the Aussie Ardina Spurs team. This was kind of like, you know, not all that dissimilar. It's just that they were playing a couple of years earlier and you could kind of get away with that English football at the time. And obviously he, he, he has a, a good affinity with the with the players they had there at the time. And it probably was just a formula that that didn't work at a slightly bigger club because um, that Everton side that, that, that he managed was shipping goals left, right and centre. And as we know, the first thing that Joe Royal did was install a couple of brick shithouse defensive midfield players and, um, and play four centre-halves across the back four and nobody was going to pass through them until they they stayed up. So it was cavalier. Um, it, it was a lot of fun. And they capitalised, I think, on a first year of the Premier League where nobody really knew what they were doing. If you look at the big teams other than United, 
they were all kind of struggling, you know, like Arsenal were supposed to be favourites for the league that year and, you know, they never really got off the ground. So I guess it's one of those strange seasons um, where, you know, an unexpected team was always going to kind of come through and we ended up with two because we had we had Villa and we had Norwich. We talked about the Villa side before. Um, I've seen a lot of lazy comparisons from kind of more recent football journalists of this side with Leicester. And I, I don't really think that's that's quite right. Although you might say that, OK, you know, you've got a few journeymen and and, and this, that and the other. I, I don't think you can really compare the Leicester thing. I think they're quite, quite different teams in quite, quite different circumstances, really. But certainly one of the more underrated title races because actually United never came that close to messing up a game for a, a couple of years after this. And, um, and and a great a great first season in the Premier League generally. Yeah, I can't say, you know, I have lots and lots of memories of this team. My mem- my memories of, of this team pretty much go to that, that cup run the next year. But, you know, this year, I think obviously as an Arsenal fan, I was uh, more um, more focused in on cup football for this season. So, yeah, I mean, they don't stand out in my in my mind a great deal for their run. But, you know, Norwich were, uh, as Pete was saying, you know, a team that were always there and around as as I was growing up. But, yeah, I mean, for Walker, it, it, it's a strange one. It, it never really worked for him anywhere else, did it? You know, this this was it. This short run for him was that. So, you know. Right time, right place, right circumstances could be all of that. You know, the argument could be the other places he just had the wrong, the wrong stuff going on. But I guess you know it's that type of club that that hires from within that have got more of a spirit, more of a togetherness maybe than than some of the others out there, and it, it just worked for him. He just knew how to get the best out of that group of players, and that might that might be exactly what it was. Yeah. So. One of the things that led to that negative kind of goal difference in the end was that although they they scored a hell of a lot of goals, they 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 won more a lot more than they they lost as you neg- almost inevitably have to do if you're going to finish third. But they had the occasional tanking that skews their their stats a little bit. Like there's the Blackburn game where they ship seven, but I think it's something like seven goals from nine shots or something ludicrous is a, a r- remarkable days kind of chance conversion that kind of leads to that as a, a slightly skewed statistic but yeah it is what it is very few teams will have finished so high with that kind of goal difference it's interesting as well that you mentioned there that arsenal were the favorites for the premier league because that was the opening day for both teams was uh arsenal versus norwich at highbury the Arsenal programme apparently doesn't even make any reference to Norwich in George Graham's, um, you know, the kind of pre-match blurb that they yeah, do. The, before. the manager's the manager's letter. Yeah. goes in the front. Master's probably still got that programme. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that it's like customary to welcome. Before my time. Uh, <laughs> before my time as a regular. Go once but, in a while. So I wasn't. I wasn't here for that. That probably would have put me off for life, to be honest. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, because although they don't make any reference to them, and it's customary to welcome the opposition in that that blurb. But um, Norwich go into the the break two 0 down. Bring on uh, Mark Robbins, who is the man signed to replace Robert Fleck, and Norwich run out four two winners. It's the start of a campaign where they'll spend most of it 
top. Uh, people forget how late it is that Man United actually catch Norwich. And yeah. although the, Villa end up finishing second, it is Norwich that spent three quarters of the season top of the league. It's, it's interesting as well, because there's that bit where I think it's November, Norwich like lose three in a row and they come off the top. And it was like, OK, right, they're going to they're going to free fall from here and Villa go top. And then they suddenly rally and they win three in a row and they're back on top for Christmas, which is which is crazy, really, because when you get those stories with like a, a smaller team that's kind of flying high, you know, they tend to sort of fall off around Christmas, don't they? And like, you know, they'll probably finish the way for cut place or something. But the idea of them as credible title challenges tends to go away. That never really happened. Nor actually, like, when it threatened to happen, they they turned it around quite quickly. And, you know, to go to Highbury and win. 4-2 against that Arsenal team you know who was still formidable back four they just bought David Seaman um you know they had you know they're just signing in right like you know you look at that Arsenal team and it was yeah it was incredible he says grudgingly uh, and they they kind of you'd have to say they underachieved in the, that early Premier League era in, in, in that sense but be, you know it's be two, two and up at half time you'd think they were cruising and then they just Norwich just come roaring back, and it's a, it's a mistake from Seaman, where he mishandles a, a cross from the right wing, and and it gets kind of bundled in, and it just kind of all goes wrong from there for them, really. And then sort of I guess it was pretty satisfying then for Chelsea to come to Norwich, and then Robert Fleck watching from the stands, and uh, and they win that one too. So very much very much they got off to the right kind of start um, because I remember Robert Fleck going. Mm. And thinking, you know, because I was a big, big fan of Robert Fleck. Like, you know, when you used to collect a sticker albums and things like um, I always remember Norwich were thinking maybe like the 87, 88 or 88, 89 season. The um, the club that I got all 11 players for first. And I remember like Robert Fleck and Robert Rosario <laughs> being like, you know, two prized, prized stickers for that album. But he was a really good player, Robert Fleck. He scored a lot of goals and um, he never did much at Chelsea. Chelsea kind of it was a bit of a flop. And. Norwich kind of had the last laugh because, of course, they promote Chris Sutton from centre-half to centre-forwards and, and they buy Mark Robbins for peanuts and it ends up coming up trumps. Uh, so, you know, very much a kind of case of not suffering from that kind of big departure. Yeah, let's uh, just spend a bit, a little bit longer on, on Robbins then, because I think people forget when we talk about Robbins, uh, Man United, there's always that narrative around he's the, that scores the goal that saves Alex Ferguson's job. And people forget that he's still in his early 20s when he start, signs for Norwich. You know, this is a Man United career that, that peters out fairly young. And he goes on to become a bit of a legend at Norwich. He's there for, for a long, long time and, and is a big part of this transition to a side that really goes from scoring not a tremendous amount of goals and is built on more of a defensive foundation to one that is free scoring. And, you know, as you say, actually concedes more goals than most of the teams around for the next couple of years. Uh, a lot of that is the, the difference that, that Robbins brings to the side. I mean, obviously Sutton will get the bulk of the goals in the next year, which will prompt a move to, to Blackburn. But the difference in style between Robbins with his drop in deeper and playing more of a role in link up play and flex predatory style probably indication of the way that the game is starting to to change in the 1990s it's funny because I, I think Robbins when he came for United he was a bit of a sort of proto social wasn't he? he kind of was a bit of a fox in the box like turned up in the right place at the right time you're right he did develop his game um you know Sutton in those early years was very much uh you know 
intelligent target man, wasn't he? And he again, Sutton developed his game quite a lot when he went to Blackburn. But in that first season, you could still kind of you could still tell a little bit that he was a converted centre half. You know, he was very good in the air, very good at holding it up. Like you know, he could whack it. Um, but yeah, Robbins was a top scorer uh, in this season. He scores he scores fifteen goals. Um, yeah, it's 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 a pity that I guess you know um, United. Uh, you know, really kind of relying on that that youth setup is probably still a couple of years away when he first breaks through. Like him and um, and Lee Martin are you know, sort of good examples of, of of kind of players that were good, but not like the class of '92 level good. But he was a, a really good pro, good goal scorer, and um, did did Norwich proud in this season absolutely. So is it worth talking through some of the personnel then, just to kind of remind ourselves and everyone out there who was actually kind of playing for the side at this uh, at this point? So talking about the regulars, the easiest kind of first name on the team sheet was the man between the sticks uh, with one of the best Barnets in the history of goalkeeping, uh, Mr. Brian Gunn. Signed from another Alex Ferguson team, signed from Aberdeen at some point in the mid-1980s and goes on to become a club legend and as is in common with many of the names that we're going to bring up today, one of the Norwich City Hall of Famers. Yeah, any kind of recollections of, uh, other than the hair, which I've already kind of touched on about Brian Gunn? I had his goalie gloves uh, for Christmas one year. So uh, we had a, um, my, my my friends and I had a, a, a brief sort of stint of us all like, you know, asking for keeper gloves for Christmas uh, because we used to obviously, you know, do all these kind of rotational, like, you know, rotational everyone has to go in goal for like at least one 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 goal match kind of thing and so we all like got our own gloves and I asked for uh Brian Gunn's uh Roosh gloves signature Roosh gloves for Christmas one year uh so that's that's my strange um Brian Gunn memory um but, but Brian uh, Gunn merchandise in legend absolutely <laughs> Um, well, I had Brian Gunn merch on a T-shirt, actually, now that you mention it. So that's a bit odd, really, that two of us would happen to have the Norwich City goalkeepers merch. <laughs> so he was he was brilliant keeper. Um, I used to when you used to watch uh, Scotland, you know, like it was always I guess it was probably Andy Gorham by this point, wasn't it? That was in goal for Scotland all the time. And because, you know, it was harder to um, to, to watch the Scottish would it have been the Scottish Premier League by then, or was it called something else? I can't even remember. It still would have been the first division then. I yeah. Um, it was harder to watch that on TV. So I, you know, you'd watch Brian Gunn like routinely being fantastic for Norwich. You think, why isn't he playing in goal for Scotland? He didn't. He, he didn't get as many caps as you as, as you might think he should have got, really. But I guess Scotland had quite a lot of keepers at that time. Yeah, and he played six games for Scotland. And of course, his son um, is 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 now a keeper as well. So that's uh, that's uh, pretty cool. Um, but yeah, he was he was a great keeper, brilliant shot stopper, commanded his area, real leader, and just yeah, played millions of games for the team and was a great pro really. Yeah, it Jim. was a good long time he was in that yeah, between the sticks for Norwich as well, wasn't it? You know, he was. I guess you, you kind of had that more back in those days. You 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 had those keepers that were just part of the furniture at a lot of these clubs and he, he was just there he was Norwich keeper for what seemed like forever 390 appearances you know that's that's, that's pretty crazy doesn't doesn't leave Norwich till 1998 gosh that's that's crazy isn't it yeah I guess he must have been 
displaced it by like maybe Andy Marshall at some point by then. But even so, even if you just as good as the second choice, that's a long, long time. He only does. He plays one more season on loan to Hibernian and then he retires. So pretty much almost a one club man. Yeah, so I guess he must have been competing not only with Gorham, but also with Jim Layton through a lot of that spell as as the Scotland number one anyway. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so moving forward slightly then, if you're looking at the the regular Norwich defenders, let's say, you're probably looking at a back four for the most part of uh, Culverhouse, Butterworth, Polston, and Mark Bowen, the the Welsh international at left back. Uh, there's a fair bit of Tottenham interest in this bat four. A lot of these defenders and, and a lot of the side generally are actually going to have come through Tottenham at some point. Yeah, um, well, we'll get to Ian Crick in a bit. Absolutely, you know, the absolute uh, legend that he is. <laughs> but but yeah, Mark, Mark Bowen uh, was was an academy player at, at Spurs. Um, never really got uh, too many games. Um, for Spurs, I think he plays about 15 games for us before he goes to Norwich as a as a young man. But obviously, he has gone on to be assistant manager of Wales. You know, played a lot of games for Wales, um, and he was an excellent, you know, an excellent fullback. When you think about like you know, true left backs with a good left foot who could get forward, you know, um, how would you describe him? I guess you'd say he was like a sort of. Uh, a mini Dennis Irwin, wasn't he? You kind of you get up and down. He was very reliable. He rarely missed a game. Was just really, really steady for a really long time. Like, you know, write his name on the team sheet and leave him there for 15 years. That was kind of what he was, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I remember him kind of starting out as a, a left winger and then moving back. So he always had the flexibility to go back into a left wing role, but also... To, to bring that into more of a kind of progressive fullback role, which I guess makes him a bit of a, an innovator. I mean, he wouldn't have been the only one at the time, but I, there was a developing trend of uh, more attacking fullbacks that he would obviously have been a part of. I mean, if you look at those those defenders as well, you know, like, so Bowen and Culverhouse, right? I mean, obviously Culverhouse comes from Spurs as well. And, um, you know, they both joined the mid-1980s and they're there for more than 10 years, which is, you know, again, like the, I guess... You know, the long-serving nature of of, of footballers at, at sort of you know that, that, that kind of 80s early 90s period and you know it was more than possible that that you'd have players nowadays you look at Stephen Gerrard or somebody and you think oh well you know it's, or, or a Carragher and you think oh yeah it's really exceptional like you know they played all those games for that for that club and you know they retired for that club and it was a, a really big deal you know um, Terry at Chelsea or whatever they, those seem really rare to us now but it was, it was routine, wasn't it? I mean, I think about Gary Mather at Spurs, like who I grew up watching. You know, he was just Mr. Spurs for forever. You know, Tony Adams at Arsenal, you know, that kind of player. Even if they don't come through the academy, like, you know, sometimes they just buy them for, you know, for peanuts from some other club and they just play game after game after game. And, you know, that Norwich back four seemed to be basically, certainly those three, Butterworth, Culverhouse and Bowen, they just seem to be there forever. Yeah, and when they do start to to break up and leave an age it sort of heralds an end of of one era of Norwich and the beginning of another less kind of profitable one I guess uh, do you think it's worth just hammering home that even though they did concede a lot of goals this had very little to do with the the defenders in question that these weren't bad players I mean oh, no, it, no, it, no, it was no. a structural thing right it was a yeah 
just that they were set up to go out and beat teams by outscoring them rather than there being uh, an inherent problem with uh, these four. It was more that quite often you would find that the two centre-halves would be the only two people left in their own half with the goalkeeper. Yeah, definitely. And I know also, also the midfield players, you wouldn't have said there was, I, mean, I guess it was the era of the box-to-box midfield anyway, like, you know, teams weren't really deploying like, you know, specialist Kante or Makaleni type players at this time. English football was all about the number eight, wasn't it? But but certainly these were ball playing midfield players. You know, Ian Crook was basically a kind of um you know, it was a Glenn Hoddle light. Um, you know, you had uh you know, obviously Jeremy Goss, who we'll talk about a little bit more detail later on, you had flying wingers like Rule Fox. So they were definitely set up to play a free-flowing brand of football I mean certainly free-flowing for the for the time period yeah when you think Vinnie Jones is not kind of anywhere near this side right when you think Goss Crook Rule Fox David Phillips as you kind of start in four midfielders they're all ball players there's there's no uh you know midfield hard man destroyer type no, in they've there. got Gary Megson but even Gary Megson could play a bit yeah, and he only comes into the side about halfway through the season as well, doesn't he? He's not a, a particular kind of regular. Uh, not to start with, for sure. And, you know, it's quite interesting as well because uh, they'd quite often, um, you know, Daryl Such would often come off the bench and, and and he would kind of, you know, play off the left and kind of cut inside. I think in the Bayern game, they even play him kind of up front as a, well, I, don't, I guess the false nine wouldn't exist then, but, you know, certainly a kind of deeper lying striker. Um, so they had kind of a lot of versatile, you know, proper footballers that could come on and do a job for them as well. So that's basically the side, because we already talked about how uh, Sutton and Robbins formed this strike partnership to kind of round out the starting eleven. And there's a lot of other players that we could touch on as you know, squad players like uh, Rob Newman and Daryl Such and they'll probably kind of all come into it as, as we kind of go. But uh, just Kuku, to, of course. Uh, yeah, who is brought in at the end of this season to uh, reinforce them when he realises that he probably does need more than just a couple of strikers. Um, they actually sell on. Darren Beckford, who had been a a club record signing, I think, to to Oldham at some point. He they had this thing where a lot of their strikers just didn't make it, and for a club that didn't have an awful lot of money, when they did splash it, it didn't always work out. They were better go into the likes of a, a Sutton or a, someone they could get relatively kind of cheap, like Robbins. Um, it's funny how that works out for a lot of clubs down there when you uh, when you, I, th- I forget who it was. Was it Wimbledon? We spoke about that as well. That when you yeah. some of these clubs go out and spend money, it didn't always work out. No, exactly. And and I think as the Premier League, the money continues to come in with the Premier League, you'll often find that smaller clubs will make quite poor choices with their uh, their choice of signing, like either by getting a you know a fallen great from a, a bigger team or whether they go into the foreign market you know like you know who can forget West Ham picking up Marco Bugas for example <laughs> yeah oh one of the great uh, great transfers of that era of uh, Premier League football so back to Norwich then there's two spells that really kind of undo this the campaign for for them they they go into the winter about eight points clear I think when it, it's December actually but the the wheels kind of come off because they go unbeaten through November and early December and then over Christmas they lose the eight point lead that they've got. Uh, Man United beat them at Old Trafford. They lose Old Farm Derby to Ipswich. Draw with Spurs. Draw with Leeds and lose away at Sheffield Wednesday. 
and then draw at home to Coventry. So that's, you know, it's a mixed set of results there, but some of those are, are quite poor results for, for the time, uh, even, you know. Uh, then they kind of recover a little bit uh, in January and they're able to kind of push on again. But another poor run in April when you really get into the business end. And this is the time that Man United obviously power through to that title because yeah. Villa, Villa are also struggling. Uh, another loss to Man United that ends their kind of interest in the the title. Spurs beat them 5-1. Um, and by they, the way, like, this was a terrible Tottenham team. So, I mean, I, I don't know how that happened, really, because that was a that was a bad, a bad Spurs team. Well, I think it goes back to what we were saying a little while ago, is that although they weren't, they weren't especially like the Ardiles side in terms of, like they weren't shipping a tremendous amount of goals every week, but when they did ship them, they could ship a lot. I mean, we had, uh, I think, you know, yeah, I mean, that was the season when Sheringham was the top scorer and he was, he was absolutely banging them in that season. So I guess we could now and again get ourselves a, uh, get ourselves a result, but uh, goodness me, like we were poor that season. Yeah. The, this is the two coaches, Really, the thing's been run by Venables, who's on some sort of board role kind of eating <laughs> Tottenham, right? Yeah, that's the one. Um, they do manage to recover to beat Leeds, which I think might be the first of Jeremy Goss's series of wonder goals game. Unless that's a few months later in 1993. He's got so many great hits. It's actually quite hard to place where they all come. Um, but there's a wonderful volley against Leeds that uh, is either in this game or later on in that year. Uh, but yeah, by this point, the bloom is really kind of off the the rose and Norwich are not only not going to win the league, they're also kind of disappointed to to not even come second in the end, despite having be, rarely been out of the top two. They finish in third. That leaves them watching the FA Cup final with some interest because, you know, we're so obsessed with the idea of the top four now that you forget that third would not have been good enough to qualify for them for Europe if Arsenal had lost the FA Cup. Because Arsenal would then have gone into the uh, the UEFA Cup and Sheffield Wednesday would have gone into the Cup Winners' Cup. So when I, it's only Arsenal winning the uh, that that former Canary, Andy Linegan, coming up with that late goal that we spoke about just a couple of weeks ago. This all comes back round and ties in. That's the thing that pushes them into the UEFA Cup, gives them that qualification and sets off this whole second strand of this episode i guess when we talk about norwich city the you know provincial club you know biggest club in, in norfolk but uh that doesn't necessarily make you one of the biggest clubs in the country going out to play some of the giants of european football and uh, making a pretty good fist of it you know I've, I've just come across the most bizarre bit of trivia which was that actually that year england was considered for one more uefa cup slot um because of a um scandal in polish football and in the end, uh, they awarded that to uh, to Hungary. <laughs> <laughs> but so actually, Blackburn could have gone into Europe that season, wow. um, but didn't. Um, UEFA were considering giving, yeah, <laughs> considering giving it to either either England or Scotland. Um, so <laughs> yeah, a strange one really. Um, yeah, so Norwich, Norwich in Europe. Uh, I watched a very charming video um, earlier on, which sort of chopped together the BBC's kind of coverage of the cup run. And of course, you have to put it in the context of the time, which was that really, you know, English clubs had only just gone back into Europe. It was often quite hard to watch them. Certainly the UEFA Cup wasn't routinely televised at all. 
it was very haphazard. So, you know, the nascent um, Champions League. I mean, I I remember um, Rangers v Leeds um, a couple of seasons before when Leeds had won the you know had won the the last iteration of the first division and um, Rangers were the Scottish champions. You know, it's a battle of Britain. It was really really exciting. It wasn't on TV, but I had to listen to it on the radio. I remember like my brother and I like tuning into Radio Five and listening to Rangers v Leeds because you couldn't you couldn't watch it on TV. So it's a, a really really different era. But obviously BBC kind of, you know, picked up the idea that that this kind of small provincial club being in Europe was actually something which was quite interesting. And, and, and so they televised it from from the beginning. And, um, you know, so you've got this this wonderful segment where they go out to Arnhem and the Norwich fans are, you know, are in Arnhem, like having a few beers and looking at the famous bridge. And, um, you know, and you've got all these Norwich players in strange suits and ties like playing pool in a bar before the game and stuff like that and um it, it just it just shows you kind of how much is lost from what was a much more innocent time uh and obviously they they, they do really well against Arnhem and I think they win the first leg is it 3-0 they win the first leg and then they that go on and, right. and then they go on and um you know and complete the job um in Arnhem as well and and that sets up the game against uh, the Giants, Bayern Munich, you know, who obviously, how many how many European Cups did they have to their name at that point? Like three, four, at least. So, yeah, crazy time. I remember BBC made a really big deal of, of showing it. And, um, you know, we all rushed home from school to watch it because it was on at some bizarrely early time in the afternoon I think, I think it was like a 3 30 or, or 4 p.m kickoff if i remember rightly it was like straight after school like running home to to get bbc one on and to watch uh to watch Bayern v norwich and what a game it was and there's going to be a lot of additional interest in it from norwich because of course they'd had positions where they would have qualified through the 1980s but for obvious reasons, the English sides hadn't been allowed into Europe during that run. So this was actually, despite many successes under Brown and and Stringer, this is something that they've been putting off for a number of years. And I think because they'd had a couple of a couple of chances and then were kind of in again, and it was sort of happening every few years, I think there was probably a sense that this wouldn't necessarily be the last time. So it's gone down in club legend as a kind of this is probably the last time they're ever going to go to to Bayern Munich and win but at the time there was a sense of optimism going forward you know no reason to think they were necessarily completely overmatched even though they obviously recognized the gulf in stature between the clubs but also a sense of making up for missed opportunities in the past yeah for sure and it's probably worth remembering this Bayern team isn't as strong as the Bayern teams you know that that would kind of uh, get to the European Cup final you know, against Manchester United and what was the one they won? Was that against Real Madrid, the one they actually ended up winning on penalties? I can't remember. Um, but but yeah, the, like those late 90s Bayern teams were, were, were much better than this one. If you look at uh, what they had, you know, Mateus had just moved back from Inter Milan, but, you know, he had some quite significant injuries before that and he'd started playing sweeper. And there's a really funny bit of commentary where John Mutson, you know, he's kind of, 
really puzzled about Mateus playing sweeper and uh, doesn't really understand why he isn't still playing as a kind of, you know, marauding box box midfield player as we would have seen him in sort of, you know, 90 and sort of that kind of 1992 kind of period when he was like, you know, arguably the best player in the world. And if you look at what they had up front, you know, it, it, they kind of had, had a kind of, um, I think it was Valencian that had up front. Um, but yeah, he, he, he just kind of, they just didn't, didn't quite have that strength that you might think a Bayern side would have if you think about it in a, from a modern day point of view. Like they got like Mehmet Scholl and stuff, but he would have been like a young player at that point. So yeah, probably name bigger than some of the players that they had out there, but obviously still, you know, a class above Norwich or so you would have thought. Yeah, I remember it's actually Mateus at sweeper who is the one who kind of doesn't really fully clear the ball with that head that leads to Jeremy Goss again scoring the scream that is probably the defining moment of this UEFA Cup run. Yeah, he's he's a, Goss obviously becomes a massive talisman because he scores in the Vitesse game um, and then he scores in this this absolute memorable volley. But of course, he scores the goal that secures their qualification in the game at home. Yeah. Um, which is also a, a very neat little cushion volley at the back post. And it was just a big purple patch of form, you know, wasn't it, for a, a player who was was really a kind of journeyman footballer, but but just hit this massive purple patch at a time when Norwich were having the most exciting period of their, of their football history. And, um, you know, it, it's a great story. Yeah, there'd been a lot of talk in the previous kind of regime that he might have to kind of leave to go and get first team football. You know, people like Andy Townsend were being preferred to him before they were sold on to to supposedly bigger clubs and, and Goss was always the man who left out. And then when he gets this opportunity he he just goes on this wonderful scoring streak. And they're all wonder goals it seems. You know, there's he just loves a volley. Just whenever he sees it sit up, he's just there to to kind of hit it. I think the Leeds one is the best of the bunch, but obviously the timing of the Bayern goals just makes uh, them uh, a different kind of level in in another way. I guess it's that thing again. It goes back to you know you don't really see there, there were obviously talk about him moving to other clubs when you go through this kind of run. That's inevitable, but he doesn't really go on to do much anywhere else. And you just wonder if again it's another thing, a bit like that Norwich bat four, a bit like Mike Walker. We so say it's the right people in the right place at the right time, and it isn't so much about whether or not you're a world beater or bad. And sometimes we can get hung up on that sort of thing. It's who fits where. Yeah, I think as well. Well, I mean, it seems that, that, that his downfall was really when they were relegated because uh, Martin O'Neill didn't fancy him for whatever reason. Um, it, it's when Martin O'Neill comes on board that he kind of um, he kind of gets he kind of gets dropped. Uh, but, but yeah, I do I do think there's a, a lot to be said for players that you know, that just fit the club and, and fit the way that you want to play. And and that should be obvious, shouldn't it? It should be obvious that um, it, it's not about going and get a load of superstars, although as we saw with the Galacticos, like, you know, that can work under certain circumstances, but it is about getting players that, you know, that work in the system um, that, that you want to play and, and that, that fit the club and what the club wants to do. Um, and the identity of that Norwich club, you know, was, I guess, 
underrated British footballers that understood how to play the system that Walker had them playing and um and probably had they had like a bunch of inverted commas stars then it wouldn't have worked in quite the same way so that's the kind of high points I guess is the third place finish and the the win over Bayern Munich obviously they go to Inter Milan which is another high point for the fans you know another kind of high profile club uh you know decent away trip all that kind of thing but this is really the, the the high point of the the Mike Walker era. It's it's going to peter out in a matter of a couple of months from from here. Uh, I think it's January that he leaves for Everton, and as we said earlier on, the Everton run doesn't really work out for Walker, and things don't really work out for Norwich either. His replacement is initially his number two, uh, John Dean, and as they'd repeatedly hired from within and it had worked out for 20 odd years it's hard to hold it against them for thinking they could do it again but it doesn't work and then Gary Megson's uh, the manager after that but before too much longer as you say they're relegated in the 94-95 season and they don't really come back up until I think is it 2004 they finally got, kind of come back to the Premier League so yeah, that's that's the um yeah that's the kind of Mike O'Neill season isn't it with um Worthington, Worthington. Sorry, yeah, and they different Northern yeah. Irish manager. <laughs> yes, that's uh, yeah. Sorry, they got that's the season when they have um, Huckabee. Yes, but also they get Ashton uh, oh, in yeah. the January transfer window, and he's that's sensational right. um, and almost keeps them up. But that's a long way in the future after years of disappointment, really, as as one of the supposed big hitters in the the second tier. Uh, because although we don't think of them as a massive side in Premier League standards, they're a big club in the second division and they never really, other than the odd playoff appearance, threatened to come back up. So there's a long kind of time in the wilderness to come. But I just wanted to kind of refocus us on just this kind of 18 month spell and why, I guess, they were the the popular choice. I think people much more than they wanted Villa to win and certainly more than they wanted Man United to win. I think Norwich were very much the kind of the the people's club in a sense in that season, the ones that the neutrals were kind of behind. And not to kind of argue with you just dismissing the comparison with Leicester earlier on, but I think if there's one thing that does link the two sides, it's that um, that sense of a provincial side coming good is always going to have a certain kind of appeal. And, until Leicester did it, this was the best example that we had in recent years. Yeah, I, I well, I think that their lovability is clear. And as much as now Villa fighting for a title w- would be a bit of a shock and out of left field, I don't think it, it was it was hugely out of the ordinary for the early 90s. You weren't worlds away from from Villa being European champions, you know. At that point, memories and all that, you know, Villa Villa weren't seen as huge huge outsiders against United. Uh, whereas, you know, Norwich, <clears throat> again, even though they were probably bigger then than they are now, was certainly the team that everyone would want to get behind. Yeah, Farmer Boys and all that, you know, rather than Villa from you know the second city as well you know these little things matter you know location is is big in these things so someone from out in the sticks where half the country's never even been 
you know it's like yeah let's get behind these guys are they where, where do they live they all live on the farm whatever you know it's it's the kind of weird mentality that people have and yeah definitely would be seen as much more of an outsider for that title than Villa would at that point I mean not only had we been the European champions 10 years or so earlier but we're only two maybe three years removed from or finishing runners-up again under Graham Taylor, you know, the two or three years before that, we had the the David Platt side that had, I mean, they never really pushed Liverpool all that close, but they were still, you know, still second, which I guess uh, just is something that people would have had memories of. It's the fact that we haven't come second since this year has obviously introduced a much greater sense of distance, but back then, the, you know, the, the fact that you could move around a lot more easily than you can now meant that, there were memories, I guess, of us being a side that, if not, could have won the league, they at least ran it close. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, actually, because these are my two second clubs in English football, if you like. You know, I think uh, I said to you before, Pete, you know, when it looked like Spurs were going to be wound up in like 1990 <laughs> due to, uh, you know, dodgy finances and stuff like that. It seemed like a real possibility at the time. You know, I was kind of auditioning these two clubs in my mind to be you know, to be my club if, if, if Spurs went under. And um, so I've always had a soft spot for both of them um, ever since, actually. And, and funny enough, this season, you know, they were kind of they were kind of going head to head. So, uh, yeah, I didn't have a massive sense of, you know, of, of, of one being, um, I guess, more favoured than the other. But I, I, I guess I wasn't as kind of, you know, immersed in the media um, then as I, as I would be now. I guess the other thing which is really interesting is that even with United, they hasn't won a league in 25 years plus. So, you know, there wasn't that sense of anyone but United that there is now. And in some ways, you know, a few people were, you know, were even kind of like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if United won a title again? Uh, So it was a... A strange season generally because Liverpool were nowhere and they'd been the dominant force for, you know, getting on 30 years. And Arsenal had been, you know, late 80s and early 90s. And Arsenal had been their kind of, you know, 1A competition. And then the mid 80s, it had been Everton. Um, and, you know, Everton were absolutely nowhere. Arsenal had become a cup team. Um, and Liverpool were having an absolute disastrous time under Sunas. Um so this is a a really interesting season in, in lots of ways. You know, Leeds are the defending champions and, and are terrible as well. So it's it's a changing of the guard in a in a really refreshing way. And I think that's why 1993 is often seen as, you know, I guess that that sort of um, cliche about it being you know ironically said to be the birth of football and nobody remembers anything that happened before 92 93 but it's interesting not just for the launch of the premier league but also because the clubs that are at the top and that are fighting for it aren't the clubs that you know have been dominating English football in the in the years prior um you know and even if you look at at the league that season and um you know and who and who finishes near the bottom you know you've got like real kind of established um you know real established clubs that are just 
really really struggling you know um is this the season forest go down uh yeah bottom of the league so so exactly so so forest had been you know again real competition to liverpool um again had won a european cup you know only 13 years before so it's it's a season that, that has has lots of changes and so it's memorable not just for two slightly more unfancied clubs challenging united but also united were in their own way an unfancied club at this point although obviously if you look at that side now you think that's an all-time great side but they were seen as bottlers yeah i remember the it's still for another year or so as well the negative narratives about man united would still be for a while yet the expensively assembled flops they were kind of seen by people who wanted to detract for them as not worth the money they'd been paid for and the comparisons were eventually this will disappear as blackburn kind of take on that mantle but that man united were essentially trying to buy the title and not doing a particularly great job of it now by the mid 1990s the anybody but united narrative that you mentioned will have overtaken it because you can't sustain that these are bottlers and yeah yeah after four times in five it doesn't by, make yeah. sense anymore by 93 94 they just have that aura and they just look unbeatable and it's depressing like well, and even, it very it very quickly becomes depressing <laughs> well even when villa beat them in the league cup final the press are running fergie's multi-million pound flop stories so you know, it, it, it's remarkable when you think about where they already were. They already had the league wrapped up. And yet that narrative was persisting. I mean, I only not remember this because obviously Villa beat them. So I've still got the press clippings. But um, yeah, the, uh, but that's the thing. I think the, the other thing we should say is that we go back to 92, 93 a lot. And a lot of the reason for that is you look Villa, Man United, Norwich, uh, also Sheffield Wednesday, Blackburn, QPR. All the teams doing well this year. They're all playing really good attacking football. Um, especially those three at the top, they were all, you know, real progressive, forward-thinking sides. You know, no one could knock what Man United did to that year. Villa were another good side when we spoke about that, you know, with the stuff that they were putting out there. And Norwich, as we said today, entertainers at their core. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and as you say, QPR, uh, QPR played lovely, you know, lovely progressive football as well under Trevor Francis. And um and although Blackburn were a bit more direct onto Dalgleish, like, you know, it's Kenny Dalgleish. You know, he, he knew a little bit about playing good football, didn't he? Um, so, yeah, they, if you if you think back, back to those goals that Shearer was scoring for Blackburn, like spectacular, you know, I guess people's memory of Shearer now is as of him as a sort of older target man with his body broken down, you know, just kind of smashing the ball in from eight to ten yards but as a young player he was just ripping teams to pieces and um yeah it's 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 a memorable season for all the right reasons this one really okay then i think that's about all we've got time for on this one it's a uh it's a really great team and it's always nice to uh, to see teams kind of break up the the kind of natural order of things and Norwich did that on the opening day against Arsenal and as, as Neil said you know favoured for the league and Mike Walker's team said no and, and made a, a dash for it themselves and, and it's always good when uh, when people can do that because otherwise this thing would be very very boring as the era of the perennial top four sort of seemed to prove for a while there we'll be uh, back next time out with a very different side we're going to look at the 
France 1998 World Cup winners. So from uh, Carra Road to the World Cup, bit of a difference, but maybe uh, not not so much of a difference as uh, I'm sure some of those French players would have loved to have scored some goals like Jeremy Goss did in his time. Uh, but yeah, look forward to that next week. And until then, we'll see you soon. <laughs>